We're going to read from the book of Exodus, uh, verse 10 to 14. But we're going to stop only at verse 14. Exodus 10 to 14. Um, oh, I apologize. You need to know that, huh? Okay, Exodus 34, 10 to 14. We're going to read every 10 to 14 in the whole book of Exodus, okay? No. Okay, Exodus chapter 34. We're going to read verses 10 to 14. I think it's page 141 in the blue uh, Bible in the pews. All right, Exodus 34, 10 to 14. So what is going on here is Moses is on the mountain, and he is receiving uh, the Ten Commandments from God. So here is what God is telling Moses in verse 10. And he said... Behold, I make a covenant. So God is still Moses. I'm making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have, have not been done, been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the peoples among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Verse 11. Observe that I can observe what I command you this day. Behold, I'm driving out from before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images. Verse 14. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. That's where we're going to stop a little bit. The Lord whose name is Jealous, he's a jealous God. So as we can see from that verse here, or from these verses, that God is speaking to Moses and he's making a covenant with him and with the children of Israel. And if you can see here, the terms of the covenant goes as follows, okay? God is saying, I will provide amazing salvation, okay? I will drive all the people and that is ahead of you, out of your way. You don't have to worry about that. Actually, God is saying that my salvation will be so amazing, so powerful, that everyone will marvel at what I'm going to do. It's going to be so beyond any man's ability. But in return, you have to abide with my own commandments, and you have to destroy every single person in that land that you're going to go to, so they will not be as near to you. And I want you to be 100% committed to me, and here is why. Because my name is Jealous. This is one of God's names. Um, and if you have your uh, praise time, praise, hallelujah time, on the back, I give you some uh, sermon notes. And that's God's name in Hebrew, the Lord whose name is Jealous. It's uh, Elkanah, one of God's names, like El Shaddai. This one is Elkanah, the Lord whose name is Jealous. Now, does that covenant sound familiar to anybody, being the New Testament 21st century church? God is saying, I provide complete salvation, I'll take care of that, but I want you to commit to me 100%. Does that sound familiar to anybody? It's what Jesus is doing in the New Testament, right? 
We could not be saved on our own. We cannot be forgiven on our own. But God provided that salvation for us when Jesus came from heaven. He died on the cross without his death and resurrection and bloodshed. There would have been no way for us to be saved. God provided the salvation. But in return, just as in the Old Testament, he asked Moses that the nation of Israel will commit everything that they are to him, because he's a jealous God, He's asking us to do the exact same thing. When you and I become born again, what do we do? We come to Jesus and say, from this day forward, you and you alone, I'm committing 100% of everything that I am to you. Nothing has changed since the Old Testament times, right? As a matter of fact, I honestly believe that, well, it's not what I believe. I, I think it's true that the person, God who's speaking to uh, Moses here is actually Jesus. It's not the Father we know from John that no one has ever, at any point of time ever, have seen the Father or talked to him. So who's that talking to Moses? It's Jesus, right? It's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus told Moses in the Old Testament, I'm commanding you to give me 100% of everything that you are because I am a jealous God. My name is jealous. This is my nature. This is who I am. And it's the exact same Jesus in the New Testament that is demanding 100% of everything that we are to be giving to him. Amen? And God is saying to Moses here in verse 10, Behold, I make a covenant. I'm making a covenant with you. So in a way, what God is saying is this is a marriage covenant between me and the children of Israel. And in that marriage covenant, I am a jealous husband. I do not allow or permit or tolerate or accommodate that my wife will be in any way or shape or form giving me less than 100% of everything that she is. And that's what God is saying here. And so many times he refers to himself as husband and the children of Israel as his bride or um, his nation as his wife. And nothing has changed, friends, from that Old Testament till to the New Testament. The exact same God in the Old Testament, who told Moses, my name is Jealous, Elkanah. Uh, he is still today just as jealous as he was in that day when he spoke to Moses. And that same God who commanded the children of Israel to give him 100% of everything that he is, everything that they are, not to share their worship or their heart or their affection or their love with any God else except him is still alive today. And he's asking and expecting everything from every single one of us that we give him, not the 99.9, but the 100% because his name is Jealous. Amen? Now, I grew up in a different country, okay? A Christian got saved in 22, came to the States in 20... I got, 12, I got saved at 12, got, came to the States at 22. I have to say, there's a lot of things in the church in America that is amazing to me. Like, where do you get this from? You know, kind of like a shocker. One of the things is when you talk with people, ask them, hey, what's your testimony? And then they say, oh, you know what? I got saved when I was 10 years old and stuff and then uh, grew up. And then when I went to college, I left God and I went out and I did my thing. And, uh, you know, just teenage, whatever, uh, young adult stuff and slipped around with everything that moves and after I got married, I came back to have a couple of kids. I decided that I'm going to come back to church, and that's when I really committed my life to Christ. But I believe I have been saved all this time. And somehow in our mind, we make a separation between, between being saved and between walking with God. Some people say, you know, I, I, Jesus is my Savior, but he's not my Lord. I got, he's accepted him as my Savior at age 10, and then my Lord at age 35. 
Well, I have news for you, friends. You don't get to pick and choose when it comes to who Jesus is. Jesus is not, you cannot say, okay, I want him as my healer, but I don't want him as my provider. You either take the whole deal or you don't take anything from him. Jesus is either Lord and Savior, or he's neither Lord or Savior. Amen? Jesus is Lord of all or not Lord at all. Amen? He wanna has all of you or he has nothing to do with you. Because his name is Jealous. Elkanah. He doesn't want to share with anybody. He's not going to take a half-hearted follower. He's not going to take even a mostly committed follower. If he says, I give you most of my heart, guess what? No deal. He doesn't do that. He doesn't accept that. That's not who he is. Amen? So I'm going to take you through the scripture right now. I'm going to share with you a couple of more passages just to emphasize the same point. That God doesn't take half-hearted, even mostly committed followers. You either give him 100% or he doesn't want anything. Amen? The first example. Let's turn a few pages to Joshua chapter 24. That's the last chapter in the book of Joshua. And we're going to read in chapter 24... And we're going to read verses 14 to 25. Now Joshua at this point already conquered a lot of land. He's a, this is his very farewell sermon to the nation of Israel. He's about to die. And he's commissioning the children of Israel and talking to them. Joshua 24, 14 and to 25. Here is what he says to the children of Israel. Now therefore, verse 14. Uh, Chapter 24, verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your father served in the other side of the river. And in Egypt, serve the Lord. This is what he's commissioning them, commanding them. And then he's giving them a way out. Verse 15. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day Whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whom, in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So Joshua here is giving them, hey, he's making a covenant, he's making a deal between the children of Israel and God. Okay, so he's saying, today you have a freedom to choose whatever you want. You can choose to serve God. Or you can choose any other God you want and go worship them. It's not a big deal. But, we, you know, there's terms to the covenant with God, but you have the freedom not to engage in that covenant. And then we read in verse uh, 16. So the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us out who brought, brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage, who did those great signs in the sight, in our sight, and preserved us in all the way that we went among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord also drove out, drove out before us all the people, including the Amorites who dwell in the land. We also, not you, Joshua, and your household, we also will serve the Lord. For he is our God. So the people is like, nope, we're going to serve God. You serve God and we choose to serve God too. We know what he's done for us. We'll go for him. But look at what Joshua did in verse 19. He's telling the people not to do it. And that's kind of a shocker. You would think that Joshua would be, hey, great. 
I'm glad that you chose the Lord. Let's all seal the covenant real quick before you change your mind. No, Joshua doesn't do that. What does he say in verse 19? But Joshua said, oh, whoa, whoa. He's just, hold your horses. Don't, don't make any commitment right now. You can't serve the Lord. You're not going to be able to do it. In a way, he's saying, I highly encourage you not to do that. Not to go with God. You can't serve the Lord. Why? For he is a holy God and he's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. So he's saying, don't do it. You can't serve God. It's very difficult. Just don't go with him. He's holy. He hates sin. And he's a jealous God. He doesn't like to share you with any other person or any other God. What I would recommend for you is just go with any other God, but don't choose the Lord because it is very difficult to do it. And you really, you cannot do it. You can't serve the Lord. But then verse 21, and the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. They're persistent. No, we got to choose God. This is very, this is exactly what we have in our hearts. So Joshua said to the people, well, you are witnesses against yourselves. He's like saying, well, I warned you. I told you not to do it. You're the one. It's, it's kind of like Joshua here. It's kind of like choosing God is a bad thing. You know what I mean? This is what he's coming across. It's like, well, I told you. I'm washing my hand. You're witnesses that I warned you not to do it, but you're choosing to do it. You are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they said, yes, we are witnesses. Now, therefore, he said, put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, your, to the Lord, the God of Israel. Do you see here what's going on? Joshua is telling the people, don't serve God because it's very difficult to serve God. You can't commit to him. Go choose any other God from any other nation who doesn't mind sharing you with other gods. You know, Baal, for example, the God of the Ammonites, if you bring another God alongside him, he won't mind. He will be okay with it. But Jehovah God, he will not be okay with it. So it's easier for you not to worship God, not to serve him. He's a holy God and he's a jealous God. But the people insisted. But this is what Joshua is telling them here. He's like, God doesn't accept unless the 100%. And it's really difficult. I highly recommend for you not to do it. Hard, isn't it? Let's move on to another example in the New Testament. Let's see what Jesus said. Once again, he's the same God who spoke to Moses. Let's see what he said in Luke chapter 14. And this will blow your mind away. I was just reading through Luke this week. And this passage is what triggered this message, actually. So Luke chapter 14, we're going to read a few verses. Luke 14, 25. Okay, so here is what the Bible said. Luke 14, 25. Now great multitude went with him, and he turned and said to them, let's pause. So Jesus now having great multitudes following him. He's going, look behind, he sees multitudes of people behind him. What do you think he would tell them? You know, I mean, if Jesus was like you and me, or average preacher, he's like, man, this is awesome, look how good I am. I'm glad that I have all these followers. But look what Jesus is telling them in verse um, in verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate 
his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters. Yes, and his own life also. He cannot be my disciple. Remember what Joshua said, you can't serve the Lord. It's difficult. Listen to what Jesus is saying here. You can't be my disciple. You can't. It's just not going to work. You can't be my disciple unless, unless you hate your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters for me. Obviously, Jesus is not thinking about literal hate here, but he's saying that if you want to be my disciple, you have to love me so much so that your love for your brother and sister, son or daughter, wife or father or mother will be like hate compared to how much you love me. Even your own life. This is how much I'm expecting if you want to be my disciple. And if you cannot afford that kind of commitment, guess what? You cannot be my disciple. Verse 27. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. If you don't bear your cross and come after me, you still also cannot be my disciple. Now, when Jesus talked to the first century Jews about bearing his, the cross and following him, it's different than what you and I might expect. In our 21st century culture, we can think, of this conversation, like somebody say, hey, uh, how is the mean boss doing with you? And then the other person replies and say, well, we all have our crosses to bear. This is not what Jewish, Jewish people were thinking about when Jesus said, bear your cross and follow me. The cross of that time, crucifixion, was the most brutal way you can ever imagine to die. This is just as brutal as it gets. And Jesus is saying, if you're not willing, if you're not willing, that every day you would accept physical torture beyond description and even lay your life down for me. Every single day. If this is not the level of commitment that you're willing to make for me, then guess what? You cannot be my disciple. I think the best picture of what Jesus is trying to say here is, we've all heard and seen a few weeks ago when ISIS took these Coptic Christians and slew them on the shores of Libya, right? And we all have seen the images. The Christian going first in these orange coats or whatever ropes they were wearing, and then the ISIS fighter behind them, and they're taking them to slaughter them, literally slaughter them. You know what? This is the level of commitment that Jesus was saying here. This is like, you're going to die, and you're okay with it. This is what Jesus is saying here. If you don't bear your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. This is once he's so crowds behind him, he turns around and says, yo, wait, you know, not all of you can follow. Just here's what I want. Can you do that or not? And then in verse 28, verse 28, yes. For which of you, now he's just, you know, Reasoning with them, for which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him. It's like, somebody want to build a tower? They sit down first and say, hey, do I have the $100,000 that it's going to take to build it? If not, then don't do it, because it's not going to work. And Jesus is saying, same thing. This is my requirement. I want you to hate everything and everybody, and I demand 100% of everything that you are. This is my discipleship conditions if you want to follow me. Can you do it or not? If you can, guess what? It's not going to work. Go find another master. Verse 30. Saying, um, 
saying, Jesus is saying, this man began to build and after that he's not able to finish. Verse 31, or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and seeks conditions of peace. Another example, Jesus is saying, before a king gets into war, he tries to figure out if he can do it or not. If he can't do it, then he doesn't have to get into war. He just seeks peace with the other king. Same way. If you want to be my disciple, you have to love me. You have to give me everything that you are. You can't do it? Then guess what? You can't be my disciple. Verse 33. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake, how much? All. Does not forsake all. All that he has, he cannot be my disciple. If you don't love me so much so that your love for every other thing can be like hate, if you're not willing to lay it all down for me, forsake it all for me, guess what? You cannot be, I mean, this is hard. I'm just reading this this week. Like, man, this is just very, very, very difficult. Then verse 34 and 35. Salt is good. But if that salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. And then he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, for us 21st century Christians, it seems like this verse doesn't make any sense in relation to what's before it and certainly to what's behind it because chapter 15, Jesus starts talking about the parable of the lost sheep, lost coin, and the lost son. So it, doesn't, it seems like these couple of verses fit for, doesn't fit in the context here. But it is not so if you're a Jew in the first century and you're familiar with the sacrificial system of that time. We know in the book of Leviticus about different sacrifices that God commanded. One of them is called the grain offering. And that's just an offering that you burn out to God. And you put the whole thing on the altar, burn, turn fire on it, and let it burn for God. And God smell it as sweet aroma. And that's in Leviticus chapter 2. And in that sacrifice, people actually put salt. It's one of the requirements in Leviticus chapter 2. And later on, in Ezekiel 43, 24, in the book of Ezekiel, after the children of Israel were taken captives and some are coming back, in the restored temple, we read in Ezekiel 43, 24, that salt will be added as well to all the animal that was burned on the burning altar. So what Jesus is saying here is this. I want you to be willing to forsake all for my sake so you can be my disciple. You should be like that soul that is willing to be burned for me and for my purposes. And this is your purpose in life. If you have to be burned for me, you should be okay with that. If you're not willing to be that committed to me, then guess what? The soul is not fit for anything anymore. It's, it's not doing its purpose. Its purpose to be burned for me. And if you're not willing to do that, just like the salt is not working anymore, you cannot be my disciple. Amen? It's not hard or what? Very hard. I ain't going to lie to you. It's very, very, very hard. But guess what? His name is Jalous. That's his name. That's his nature. He doesn't take rivals with him. He doesn't take other gods with him. He's not okay with sharing him with other 
gods or giving him 99% of your heart. He's not okay with that. He is okay with 100% of your heart. Or he cannot, you cannot be his disciple. I cannot be his disciple. I'm not preaching at you. It's for all of us. I cannot be his disciple if I don't give him 100% of my heart. Let's just read the very last example here in James chapter 4. Book of James chapter 4. We're going to read a couple of more verses. James chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. Now, this is James uh, telling the Christian of his age that he's writing this letter to. And this is what he says in chapter 4, verse 4. Adulteresses, adulterers and adulteresses, don't you know that the friendship of this world is enmity with God? He's talking to believers. Call him, you're a bunch of adulterers. Don't you know that friendship with this world is enmity to God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend with this world makes himself an enemy to God. Now, I'm going to read this quote for you word for word from one of the commentators because it's just so good. I cannot say it even any better. Listen to what this guy said. We have no evidence that James Reader with overly disclaiming God or consciously deciding to follow the world in state. We don't have evidence with that. All what we have is they have tendency to, in, to intimate, imitate the world by discrimi discriminating against people. We read about that in chapter 2, verse 1 to 13. We read that they were favored the rich and not favored the poor. They also speak negatively of others. In chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, he tells them about the power of the tongue and they need to tamp their tongue because they can speak negatively about others. And then they exhibit, exhibit better envy and selfish ambitions. We read that in chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. And they pursue their own pleasures. And we read about that in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. But by doing these things, they amount to just that, adultery in the eyes of God. James, as it were, wants to raise the stakes so that his readers see their compromising conduct for what, really, for what it really is. God tolerates no rivals. When believers behave in a worldly manner, they demonstrate that at this point their allegiance is to the world rather than God. I just wanted to read it because it's just so powerful. I can't say it any better than this. Not overly living for the world, just acting similar to the world in some manners, God sees that as adultery. It's like a wife that leaves her husband, go sleep with another man. This is exactly how God sees our conduct if we're not 100% committed to him. Verse 5, or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy? Don't you think that the Bible is true when it says that God is a jealous God? His name is Elkanah, the Lord whose name is Jealous. It's hard. It's really hard. Is it fair though? Is it fair that Jesus would ask the 100% of everything that we are? Is it fair? It is fair. You know why is it fair? Because he gave the 100% for us. He didn't spare nothing on the cross for you and me. Even the very last drop of his blood he shed on the cross so you and I can be saved. He did not spare a thing so you and I can be saved. And the one who gave it all 
is demanding and expecting nothing but all. And that's just fair. And honestly, I tell you, friends, this is all hard. But when we look at the cross and when we fix our eyes on Jesus and what he has done for us so we can be saved, so we can be made right with God, every single sacrifice we do for him, it's going to be so easy. Listen to this amazing hymn. It says, when I survey that wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my riches gain I count by loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should post safe in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, from his hand, from his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? This is just an amazing verse too. Where the whole realm of nature mind that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my love, my all. It's easy when we focus on Jesus. A lot of people think you can be nuts to leave America to go do missions overseas. But you know what? When you see what he has sacrificed, nothing is precious anymore. Nothing is precious anymore. Now, I want to put this in context, and then I'm going to close with one last thought. I don't want the enemy to distract you and manipulate the scripture. So God is not saying, Jesus is not saying, I want you to be able on your own to leave everything and then come to me, and only then I'm going to accept you. This is not what God says. But God is saying, I want you to be willing to leave everything for me. I'll give you the power, but I want you to be willing to forsake it all. We, you and I cannot forsake things on our own. Man, we cannot. If we can, then we'll save ourselves. He'll give us the power. But all what he wants from us is the commitment. It's like my wife and I. When I committed myself to her 100% of everything that I am, guess what? I love her. I don't want to hurt her in any way. That's why I, I don't want to... I want to be committed because I love her so much so that I don't want to be not committed to her. Her love is giving me the strength to be faithful to her. And this is what God is saying. I'll give you the power to be faithful. I'll give you the power to commit. But all what I want, I don't want you to hold onto nothing. Because if you want to hold onto something, you cannot be my disciple. Let's close with that verse, the very last verse in, in, uh, in James 4, 6. With same passage that we're reading. Verse 5, he's saying, or do you think that the Spirit says in vain that uh, the scripture says in vain that the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy, verse 6, but he gives more grace. This is what verse 6 says. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This is the good news. He gives more grace. Yes, he demands the 100%. Yes, he's not going to tolerate rivals. Yes, he's not going to accommodate you and sin or accommodate sin in your heart or accommodate another God. But the good news is he gives more grace. If you come to God and ask him that he will give you the grace to commit, he will give you that grace. The same spirit who's so jealous in us is the exact same spirit that gives us the grace to live by his own standard. But look at the end of that verse. For God... Gives grace to who? To everybody? To who? Only the humble. How about the prideful one? Does God give him grace? God resists him. We have to have that attitude. We have to come to God humbly and say, God, I'm sorry. 
I, I have gods in my heart next to you. But I humbly come to you and ask for grace so I can be committed to you. This is the good news. He's not a cruel, mean God. He's a loving, merciful God, but he's a jealous God. He's not going to be okay with us having other gods in our hearts with him. He's not okay with that. Nobody's okay with that. Nobody will take a spouse who will not commit 100% to them. Amen? Nobody will do that. And God is the same way. We took that from him. He gives grace, but you have to be humble. You have to come to him and say, I'm sorry, help me. I can't do it. And if you do, he'll give you the grace to do it. Amen? Let's all close our eyes and stand up and pray. Brother Mark is going to play that song to us. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord.